0: So this morning, guess what, we are coming to the end of the book of Philippians. So we will be um, going through the final salutation and greetings by the Apostle Paul, in which he gives his final benediction to the people at Philippi. So if you have your Bibles, or you uh, want to look up to the screen, uh, let us read Philippians chapter 4 verses 21 to 23. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The Word of God reads, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, for it is truth, for it is a lamp to our feet. As we study today the implication of who the saints are and the fellowship that those saints enjoyed in the Church of Philippi, may we bring that home here to the people, to the saints at the church, which is your church, Lord, the local church of Acts Reformed Church. Be with us now, Lord, as we reflect upon your goodness of the truths that you've delivered to us through the Book of Philippians. We ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, I've uh, titled this sermon, as Brother James mentioned briefly, "The Saints and Reflections on Philippians." Um, this is a time that, as we look at this last sermon of Philippians and we fellowship with each other and during our meal. Um, I would encourage us to speak about what we learned in this book, to look back at what we have learned and to ask each other, hey, so anything stood out to you in the book of Philippians, something that uh, we can remember and take with us as we move on to study other parts of scripture, right? And perhaps some of those uh, things that we should take away is... um, A couple of verses that are often used, but that perhaps are not used in the right context. Right. So let us um, let us just glean wisdom from the study that we've done in the book of Philippians. And hopefully that will be helpful and uh, sanctifying to us. And it will be something that brings God glory. Okay, so we're going to get right to it. I've developed uh, three main points to discuss the end of Philippians. And then we're going to look back at some, some of the things we learned. The first thing that we're going to learn is what is a saint? Because Paul addresses saints over and over, right? And here in his final greeting, he's saying that the saints are being greeted. And there's this type of joy, this type of um, fellowship and commonness among the saints. What does that mean? Which leads to the second point, how does the Fellowship of the Saints um, contribute to the efficiency of the ministry there at Philippi? And then thirdly, we're going to look at some reflections. If we were to look at the book of Philippians from an airplane height point of view, just looking down what it would look like. What, what are some of the main um, takeaways we can do from Philippians, which would hopefully Help some of our conversations, like I said, uh, later today or during the week that we can speak of uh, the things that we've learned from this book. So let's go right to it. Our first point here in uh, the first two verses that we're studying today, 21 and 22, is what is a saint? There in in those two verses, uh, Paul says the following. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers, which are also saints, who are with me greet you who are also saints, right? All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So in introducing this topic of who the saints are, we cannot get away from the cultural aspect of how many of us were instructed and brought up when we ask ourselves, what is a saint? There's two major misunderstandings of this term Uh, One, due to uh, a religious aspect, which is from our uh, Roman Catholic friends, right? I was raised in the Roman Catholic tradition. And from that, we kind of get this um, sometimes even seemingly unconscious understanding of what a saint is. And then the second misunderstanding comes from culture at large, right? So let's take a, a look at each of those briefly. First, from the Roman Catholic Church... Uh, there's a misunderstanding of what a saint is because they have a special process that they go through in order to declare that someone is a saint. They have a uh, a process that goes through, right? It's kind of like, how does a bill become a law? It's like, well, how does a person become a saint? There's this uh, detailed process, and I'll summarize it for you briefly. First of all, first requisite is that you have to die. So according to that standard, we all are disqualified because... As far as I can tell, all of us are alive and kicking. After a person dies, um, that it seems as though they had enough merit to become a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. There is a five-year wait period to ensure that any high emotion or any um, uh, any uh, feelings of this person being raised to sainthood without it really being merited. They need to wait for that to die down. And after those five years, that person is still in very high regard uh, within a particular community that is seeing them and uh, looking to them to become saints. Then that's where the third step begins. And that's an investigation by uh, the authorities in the Vatican. What that entails is an in-depth investigation to confirm that the person that is being advanced and advocated to become a saint, that... The story holds true. Were they truly dedicated to the Roman Catholic Church? Were they truly living a holy life according to the Roman Catholic teachings and ordinances? Right, so if so if they pass that third step they acquire the term servant of God Which is a phase that is granted like you are you are looking like a good candidate to become a saint now after that get this The Vatican then needs to confirm that the dead person is able to perform at least one miracle by the faithful people praying to that saint to intercede. They call that beatification. A miracle needs to be attributed to the prayers made to that dead person, right? I mean, we can already see all kinds of issues here, right? Because that is very unbiblical. And then lastly, if that miracle comes through, which to some extent it's, you know, it's very subjective, but it could even be demonic, right? There could be uh, demonic activity there to make it seem as though it is a, a miracle uh, of, of divine caliber. If that's confirmed, then canonization, which means you are officially now uh, issued the title of sainthood, uh, an official ceremony takes place and now um, the Roman Catholic Church would approve of that saint being venerated, being prayed to uh, by the, the people at large, because now that saint is able to officially intercede. Right? So just briefly, um, as I said, I was brought in the Roman Catholic tradition, but that is utter heresy. That is an abomination and an insult to the holy and triune God. We do not pray to dead people. We do not pray to saints. And there is no such thing in the Bible as those steps uh, that the Roman Catholic Church has pretty much invented in order to come up with somebody being declared a saint. Now, we will see that why in more detail. But by and large, that is not biblical, so we need to get rid of that. That's not how people become saints. The second misunderstanding is from culture at large. And this comes from from the notion that secularism basically thinks everyone is basically good and there's a potential for people to be really good. But a saint is, in secular terms, someone who really doesn't do anything wrong. So it is theoretically possible, but when confronted with the, uh, the depravity and, and the evidence of humanity not being good after all, then we kind of get away from it by saying well we know nobody's perfect right that's when we are forced to admit our sinfulness and the sinfulness of our fellow human beings so in secularism in the culture at large although sainthood is theoretically possible is practically unattainable right because like oh i'm not a saint or so and so they're not a saint Um, so it's virtually Unattainable, but theoretically is there. like somebody's a saint, like you look up to them because they're uh, so righteous in their moral character. So then that leads us to what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say uh, in regards to what constitutes a saint? Paul in his epistles, he refers to the church as saints, to the members of the church as saints. I have a, a, a list here of very quick references, quoting uh, parts of verses that refer to saints in the books uh, that Paul has written. So we'll go through this real quick. Romans 1, 7, Paul says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints. Does it sound like those people were dead? No. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, Saints by calling. 2 Corinthians 1 1. To the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Colossians 1 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Ephesians 1 1. To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Right, that's the book we're in. Including the overseers and deacons. So we could clearly see that Paul is not referring to dead people. Paul is not referring to people that have gone through a particular process in order for them to be declared saints. Paul is not doing an investigation to see if they've uh, performed any miracles or done any of that. Also, very important to uh, point out, does Paul then mean that those people are perfect? No, not by any means. I mean, Galatians, Corinthians, it doesn't take long to see that Paul is rebuking the people in the church, right? Because although the people in the church are saints, they are not perfect. We are still fallen. We have a fallen nature in which the old man, the sinful nature creeps back in and we can be carnal and we can be disobedient and we could be backsliding. And yet Paul is referring to those people. As saints. So what is a real saint then? When Paul does his greeting and his salutation and his benediction and refers to people as saints. A real saint, according to the Bible, is a person who has been set apart for service to God. It applies to all Christians everywhere. Whether Jew or Gentile, no distinction of skin color is ever made. No distinction of tribe, language, or tongue. Secondly, a saint is a person who has recognized that God is creator. God is infinitely holy. That's who God is and acknowledges that as a person that he or she is not holy, but sinners and that we need a savior. Therefore, by trusting in Christ for forgiveness of sins, based on the perfect life of Jesus, based on his death on the cross. His burial and resurrection, defeating sin and death, based on that, trusting in Christ, his goodness is attributed to us and therefore become becoming a saint. So a saint then is a sinner who has been forgiven by God, is no longer God's enemy, but instead is God's adopted child. Then as a new person, a new creation, a saint, is now set apart. Think of it as everyone scattered all over the world, but God has certain people set apart, marked, redeemed for himself, for his glory, so that those people can walk and grow in obedience to Jesus. So today, if you have trusted in Christ, if you have been born again, if you are spiritually alive, if. The message of the gospel of you needing a savior because you are broken and a sinner and disobedient and a rebel and enemy of God. And you have trusted in Christ and attained his righteousness by doing so. You are today a saint. Could look to each of you and tell and, and tell you that you are a saint. Saint Alan. Married to Saint Lucy. Right? Officially. It even has a nice ring to it, right? Now... This is crucial, understanding that we are children, that we are adopted children of God is crucial to our identity because if we leave the void of who we are in Christ, all other kinds of ideologies and belongings of whatever group or entity will want to fill that place. This is what I mean. In our culture today, what is very prevalent is that we are encouraged to be divided by groups, race, ethnicity, skin color, political affiliation, environmental causes, sexual identity, which is a big one. You are either an oppressor or you're being oppressed, etc. So my brothers and sisters, caution when you're being encouraged When you are endorsing someone who is encouraging you to identify in this type of groups, run from that. That is not a biblical identity that we should ultimately identify for, even if we belong to some of those groups. That is not where our identity is. Our true identity is that we are children of God. We are saints set apart for the service and worship of Christ. Someone who understands this well and understands the times that we're living on. It's a young man I have come across. He is a great thinker and blogger at a website called Slow to Write. He understands how radically our culture is divided. His name is Samuel Say. And I I got a quote from him that is very, very um, enlightening. It'll shine some light here. I put it there on the screen. Samuel says, I am a member of the Fanti and Aiken tribe in Ghana, but they're not my people. I live in Canada for most of my life now, but Canadians are not my people. I am black, but black people are not my people. My people are those who make Jesus Christ their king and heaven their home. You see that? This is a young man that understands the concept of sainthood that understands that any division in those categories of groups is unbiblical, especially for the purposes that those wanting us to identify in those groups want. More to come in later sermons and maybe even in a a small group study that if God grants me the time uh, I will put together. So, what does the Bible say about being able to identify as a saint and identifying with God's people? The very book of Philippians tells us that right there, which reflects what Mr. Samuel Say is uh, putting in his quote. Philippians three twenty says, "But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ." Similarly, Galatians three twenty eight: "There is neither Jew nor Greek." There is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. See that? So again, no distinction of whatever categories this world may want to divide us in, even if we are part of those categories, right? We are ultimately citizens of heaven because we have a heavenly father and we have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore we are the true offspring of Abraham. We are the true Israel. Let us not forget that. So that kind of takes care of what is a saint. When Paul addresses the Philippians as saints and the rest of his epistles and letters, we see that Paul refers to saints. Hopefully now we understand what a saint is and what a saint is not. Now, let's take a look at our second point, the fellowship of these so-called saints, right? The the people that are uh, called the saints, according to what Paul has told us. So we're going to read now uh, the same verses we read, but now we're going to focus on the greeting. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So here the word greet is an expression of greeting upon meeting someone or seeing someone. And in the case of the saints meeting each other, that greeting with other Christians implies a special type of joy because when you meet other Christians, you are actually meeting your true people. You are meeting your true family. There's been a few times when I'm traveling abroad and I happen to meet up Christians, either plan to meet them or happen to meet up with them. And those times that I've met genuine Christians, it truly feels like my real family. And we spend just hours talking about the Lord and and the great things that he's done in our lives. So that's when we meet God's people. There's a special type of joy of greeting that goes along with that. God's people, if you are a child of God, God's people are your people, first and foremost. Now, I must mention that this is difficult to grasp, accept, and practice in actuality for some of us that have, brought, have been brought up in a culture where we are to really value our, our blood family, right? In a Hispanic culture that is very, very strong, traditionally, Now, does that mean that Christianity does not value our blood family, our fleshly family? It absolutely does. Honor your father and mother. Do not provoke your children to anger. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Submit to them under the Lord, etc., etc. The man being a, a provider, lover of his home, protector so that's that's not the case that we don't care we do care a lot about our our blood family but there is nevertheless a distinction when it comes to a child of God identifying with a family of God a Christian is therefore to recognize that this is his real family or her real family this is a heavenly family that is not necessarily their blood family the only way our fleshly family will be our true family in the heavenly places one day is if they too are Christians. And that's why we should always pray for our family without ceasing so that if they are not Christians that God may grant them repentance and they could see their need for a Savior and turn to Christ. I'll reinforce this with the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, 46-49. This is when Jesus' mother and and his siblings were worried that Jesus was getting in trouble because he was stirring the pot, speaking to religious people, and he was getting in trouble. And this is what it says about that passage. Matthew 12, starting in verse 46, says, While he was still speaking, meaning Jesus, to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the men who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. There is. So Jesus confirming that our real family are the people of God. Those who do the will of the Father. So what is the will of the Father in this context of those that are His children? Well, the words of Jesus speak to us again. John 6, verse 40. It says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. There it is. For those that are to be called... And saved and redeemed according to God's plan. That is the will of the Father. Notice it says. Everyone who looks to the Son. And believes in Him. There's many people who look to Christ. Acknowledge Christ. But don't trust Him. Because they have not really confessed their sin. They have not really repented. They have not really walked in obedience with Him. So let us be that a reminder and an exhortation for us that we are to look to the Son, to Jesus, and believe in Him. Which implies trusting in Him, abiding in Him, following after His ways. So then the saints that Paul is speaking about, in his final greeting to the Philippians, enjoy this special type of bond of fellowship, this closeness, this brotherly love. So when they greet each other, they truly have that joy of the Lord in them because they know that they are the true family of God. This fellowship encouraged Paul as he was in jail. Remember Timothy was with him and the other saints visited him as well. So this fellowship in Christ was enjoyed by the Philippians who had been diligent in the work of the gospel at their local church. After being planted there for some time, they were evangelistic. So in that they were doing the work of God and they also were being sanctified, especially by hearing the words of Paul writing this letter to them. They were encouraged to be Christlike in their character. Of which Paul continuously encouraged them in the letter. So in that final greeting then, Paul mentioned something really important after that, which it says that the saints are greeting you. And then he mentions specifically the saints that are in the household of Caesar. Right? That's really important. Why? This is like a special badge of honor for God's work. For God being able to have his gospel infiltrate the halls of the household of Caesar. Because the household of Caesar were proclaiming that who is Lord? Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And some of those people have been reached with the gospel through Paul being imprisoned. And they were now proclaiming Christ is Lord. You see that? Now it is inevitable that those in Caesar's household would be found out sooner or later. And face the consequences of betraying Caesar. And that they had already or would eventually have to give up the benefits of being members of Caesar's household. Which... This kind of rings a very true application of what Paul's writing to the Philippians when he says that they need to trade everything for the surpassing knowledge of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as Savior. That would be a very applicable uh, verse for them. And that they needed to despise everything they had, leaving it behind for the sake of knowing the real king, King Jesus. So those who once held high status as people of the king's palace were now equally despised and rejected by the ruling class by the elite isn't that similar today where a person showing goodwill and good works and charity could be upheld by our secular culture but the moment anyone doing good works and goodwill and helping and doing this and the other moment That person dares to boldly speak for Christ immediately. They'll be ousted. They'll be canceled. They'll be punished for committing the unpardonable sin in the secular culture, which is claiming exclusivity of Christ Jesus. So nothing has changed. The same would be experienced today. So then Paul closes was wishing the Philippians... The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, for it for that to be with them, and this is a classic and great benediction, right? Before closing off, before sending someone off, you give a benediction, and that's what Paul tells them: the grace of God be with them, which is one for them to keep receiving what they don't deserve, right? That's a grace. They've been saved. They've been um, held by God, uh, through his provision, through his goodness, through their ministry at at their church of Philippi, being able to prosper. So one sense that's the grace that Paul is wishing upon them. And secondly, grace also consists of strength, the strength to persevere in the work of the gospel. So is it not true then that we also, just as that benediction is given, don't we also need God's grace in this church? I can think of a few things why we need God's grace. We need God's grace to remain faithful to Scripture. So that if we are ever deviating from Scripture, that this church would be faithful by the men and women here to call out anything that is deviating from scripture. Secondly, we need God's grace to have fellowship with each other, to encourage each other, to rebuke one another, to love one another, grieve with one another, rejoice with one another. We need God's grace to be able to live that out. And as we do live that out, It is a sign that God is working, that God is giving us His mercy, His grace, His love, His patience, His faithfulness. In order to work those things in us. Because out of ourselves, we don't even desire it. So it is dependence upon God's grace. And as God does that work in our local church, we turn to Him to praise Him, to thank Him, to worship Him. To give glory to Him for the work that He has done and is doing. So that benediction is applicable to us very in a very real sense. To keep progressing and persevering. So then let's go back and look at some reflections now from the book of Philippians. Some things that uh, could be of interest to us as we... Um, have recollection of the book of Philippians, some of these things should immediately come to mind. And hopefully, I pray that they will, if not at least these, some of these, or maybe more, right? So let's go through some of these. First, we see that Paul addresses this letter to a local church. That's in verse 1-1, right? He addresses us to the local church. So that's a reminder that the epistles that Paul is given, the instructions, the encouragement that Paul is giving are specifically given to a local church. And I don't think this applies to anyone here, but I'll say it for a reminder. My brothers and sisters, there's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. No such thing. I'm sorry. We must be committed to a local church. That's the context in which Paul's epistles are written. They're written to a local church. They're not written to a lone wolf Christian uh, in the middle of nowhere. Nope. So let us encourage ourselves, knowing that God has been faithful to us to provide a local church. And then immediately we see that this book of Philippians is about encouragement. There's a lot of encouragement here. We have encouragement in suffering. In verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul says that we should make our suffering, we should make account for Christ. Paul says that his imprisonment he's making account for Christ and has produced a boldness for him and other Christians around him to preach the gospel. Encouragement and suffering. Using suffering for the glory of Christ and for boldness in speaking the gospel. You see that? Encouragement and suffering. We also learn that there is encouragement in life and in death. For to live is Christ. We are doing His work. We are abiding in Him. We are preaching the gospel. And to die is gain. Paul says that in Philippians 1.21. So encouragement in suffering, in life and death, and encouragement in opposition. In one twenty eight, Paul says that The church should strive in the midst of opposition to the gospel. Right? It's like lifting weights. If one is trying to gain muscle, but you just sit around, there's no way you're going to gain muscle. In the same way, our boldness, our encouragement should strive in the face of opposition to the gospel. It is ordained by God in order for us to persevere, in order for us to grow, in order for us to be refined in our walk with God. So encouragement and opposition. Then the book of Philippians takes this turn and it points us to the supremacy of Christ. It tells us, first of all, that God is the one who begins the work of saving faith in us. And that He will complete it. Right, That's in verse 6 of chapter 1. We actually sang the song, which is one of my wife's favorite. Right, God is the one who initiates, walks with us through sanctification, and finishes the work of our salvation. It is Him who does it through us. And then, another way in which Jesus is proclaimed as supreme is in the humility of Jesus. We are told in chapter 2 verses 4 through 8 that Jesus emptied himself, humbled himself by entering his own creation, not in the form of a king, an earthly king, but in the form of a servant. And that he was obedient to the will of the Father, even to the point of death on a cross the humility of Christ, which then is followed by the exaltation of Christ. We are told later there in uh, chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, that Jesus has been given the name above all names and that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. And that it will be done to the glory of God the Father. So we see by, first of all, the witness of scripture. That when someone comes close to the holiness of God. That they are so aware of their unrighteousness. That is unbearable. The presence of God is unbearable to us as humans. So when the scripture says that every knee will bow, every knee will bow. It's a reminder for us that by God's grace and mercy, we are able to bow our knee now in recognition of who he is, in agreement that he is holy and we are not. Christ's humility and his exaltation. The supremacy of Christ In that he is God in flesh. So then, what we just reviewed here is the indicative. What is known, what is fact, what has been done by Christ. Now Paul kind of takes a shift and goes into the imperative. Which means, given what is true, given what has been done. In light of that, now go and do thus. Right, We are not to forget that because the reason why we are told, instructed, and even commanded to do certain things is not so that we could prove how good we are or to see if we could do it. We can't do it. We need God's strength and wisdom and mercy to be able to follow His will and His ordinances. But it's because what we couldn't do has been done already in Christ. So what are some of those imperatives? Well, Paul tells us that we are to live as examples, as light in a dark world. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. That we are to follow the example of Christ, of his humility. Right? Humility is then seen as a spiritual discipline. Because in our flesh, I don't want to be humble. I mean, I want to be thought of of as humble, but that's my arrogance showing itself of wanting to be thought as humble. You see that? So there, I just confess to you. Humility is a spiritual discipline that we must be diligent to exercise and to beg God to give us humility. Why? Because we could do it and it's easy? No. Because we can and we need his strength. And because it already has been done to the ultimate extent in the person of Christ. Humility. And in that humility we then live as examples, as light in a light world, in a dark world rather. Then there's a warning that as we get excited in doing good works and trying to be good, to not fall in the trap of legalism, of adding works To the finished work of Christ. This warning comes in the form of the Jewish people. The Jewish religious people. Telling their congregants. Telling their congregation that you can become a Christian. That's fine. But you still have to follow our laws. You still have to be circumcised. Specifically, right? That's in chapter 3. The first 8 verses. So there Paul tells us that only... The righteousness of Christ will be enough to satisfy God's requirement of holiness. No circumcision, no additional extra work by you will ever be sufficient. Only the work of Christ. No other good work is going to give you any brownie points with God. That is summarized in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3, which I have put in the notes. I'll read it is what Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost, because for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See that? The only way we could become righteous is by trusting in Christ and being found in His righteousness, not ours, because we have none. Then going to chapter 4, which should be a little bit more fresh in our minds. Paul starts by encouraging the Philippians to stand firm, stand firm in the faith. That comes with humility and the ability to be at peace within the church, within church conflict, within church disagreement, within different uh, ways of thinking uh, that are not doctrinally uh, essential, right? So we we have a vote today to see where we're going to go with our location, right? So there's no reason to have a church split over that, right? (laughs) We're going to have differences of opinion. That's just the way it is. And humility and maturity in Christ will enable us to deal with those things in a godly manner. Paul also reminds us there in chapter 4 to rejoice that as a child of God our salvation is secure and that while here on earth our Heavenly Father will provide for our every need. How does that work? God provides for his people through his people. All right, we talked about that a few Sundays ago. So we could be rest assured that in our human needs as we have where we need food, we need shelter, we need protection, it says that God through his people will act. And through that we are to be content. Remember we talked about being content in Christ. Which then, because we are content either in feast or famine, right, in, in, in much or in little, we are content. And therefore, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can be content in much or in little. And while we obey and abide in Christ, while we are generous givers, while we heed and attend to the call of, to partner materially with the gospel, then God will provide for our every need, according to his riches. Right? I just mentioned there, reference two verses that are to be used in the right context. Right? So then the key is that none of that is possible unless we are united with Christ. So then the book of Philippians, as we have gone through a cliff notes sort of uh, review of it is really not about the Philippians. You heard that right. The book of Philippians is not really about the Philippians. It's not really about us. It's for the Philippians. It was addressed to them. And it's addressed to us as a local church. Mm-hmm. But the book of Philippians is all about Jesus. It's pointing us to Jesus. I'll read you a quote from Jesus from John 5, verses 39 and 40, it says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. See that? Obviously Jesus is talking here about the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, the Psalms, and in other scriptures, Jesus makes a more specific reference that um, attributing to the fact that Scripture is written about him. So if the Old Testament is written about him, how much more the New Testament that explicitly talks about Christ, right? So the book of Philippians is a an exhortation, an encouragement for us to look to Jesus. For us to trust in Christ for our salvation so that we can become saints, right? And then from there to abide, to walk, to be sanctified, to walk with one another, to be encouraged through whatever issues in life bother us and grieve us and make us suffer. If we abide in Christ and we are part of His church we can and will prevail because of Him, because we are trusting in Him. Now, any other club or organization out there can have very good moral codes and do very charitable things. Yet, they will never have the gospel if they're not the church, a true church of Jesus. Moral living is not the gospel. Jesus, in His life, His death, His resurrection, And Him giving a transformed heart to those that trust in Him. That is the heart of the gospel. That is the people that He calls to be saints. So then let us belong to that family, to the family of God as saints in Christ. So the book of Philippians can once again point us to Christ. And as a result, us being His children, that we can obey And walk with each other, bear one another's burdens, and point each other to Christ at every turn in our lives so that we can be an encouragement to one another, so that we can reach others that are outside the church, bring them into the fold of God as God calls them, and in all that, to glorify God. Because we are the saints, we are the family of God. And to that, I think... We should all think about our backgrounds, where we come from, as Mr. Samuel Say did, right? And say, I'm from, I don't know, I I think Mexican descent for sure, but before that, some type of Arabic descent. But Mexicans are not my people. I lived in South Central for many years, but the people of South Central are not my people. You know who my people are? You guys. You guys are my people. And I hope that each one of you reflects upon that, which is a time for us to rejoice and give thanks to God for giving us his people and us being part of his family. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for the book of Philippians that has been a tremendous blessing to our church. May we be reminded, Lord, that it's not about us. It's not about the Philippians even. It is about you, Lord Jesus. You are the king. You are the savior. And in that, your instruction, your encouragement in your scripture is for us. Although not about us. And that we would acknowledge that and walk and abide in that. In our everyday lives, in our everyday struggles, in our everyday failings. To know that we could depend upon the saints. The saints who are alive, Lord, we are here today. And for that we rejoice. As we continue our fellowship, as we continue this day. Declaring and proclaiming the greatness of your majesty and your power. In Jesus' name, amen.